It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, so often in Scripture, and it's somewhere around 200 times that you read the words, fear not, fear not. There's, there's always something to fear. We've all got our fears. We, uh, we all have fears that are common, but we all have fears that are uh, specific and particular to us. You, you've seen somewhere along the line a list of uh, of the top ten fears. As I recall, <laughs> I'm part man, part woman tonight. I'll go from baritone to soprano here. I never know when it's going to happen. So, um, I think number one for for the majority of people is the, is the fear of speaking. If you're normal, you don't want to get up in front of people. Those of us who do, our mothers dropped us when we were infants. Obviously, <laughs> we're not quite right, but uh, that's for a lot of people. So it's really something. For others, it's a fear of heights or a fear of, um, what do you call that, when you're hemmed in? Claustrophobia. Claustrophobia. There are all kinds of different fears. I think, though, among men, hands down, number one, the greatest fear is the fear of failure. We've all got that. We, we absolutely do not want to fail. We are petrified of failure. It, uh, it haunts us. It scares us. It intimidates us. We, we, are, um, we are raised, and uh, it's within us to want to be successful. Uh, we, and, and, and there's a good side to that, and there's a, a negative side uh, in Scripture. <clears throat> you have ambition. Paul said we make it our ambition to please the Lord. That's a good ambition. It's a good ambition to want to live a quiet life and work with your hands and be productive for your family and love your wife and enjoy the blessings of God. And uh, th these are all good things, but in Scripture, there's a selfish ambition, which is demonic and godly, uh, ungodly, demonic, you know. So you got these different ramifications. But we, we do not want to be failures. We want to see success and productivity in our lives. Um, inevitably, in every man's life, you're going to hit failure. I found a quote this week from Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick. My, my son Josh um, has told me he thinks that's the greatest novel ever written because of the Christian metaphors. Um, interestingly enough, R.C. Sproul was interviewed recently, and there was a, a series being done at the Gospel Coalition by a guy named Justin Taylor, who does blogging every day. And he was asking different Christian leaders what they thought was the most significant novel ever written. And they would give their reasons why. And just kind of fascinating to read. R.C. Sproul said he thought the greatest novel ever written was Moby Dick. Herman Melville wrote Moby Dick. Here's a quote from Herman Melville. He said this, He who has never failed cannot be great. Failure is the true test of greatness. We're talking about uh, finishing strong in this semester, uh, running the race and finishing strong. To finish strong would be to be successful. Uh, we mentioned early on that there are at least three ways you can finish. You can finish poorly. No one wants to do that. Solomon did that. He had a great start, but a lousy finish. Uh, wound up hitting the finish line as an idolater. Uh, you can finish so-so, just kind of an average finish. 
you just kind of check out as you get older and you start compromising and, you know, you're going through motions more than from the heart. We don't want that. We all want to finish strong. Inevitably, for the man who is going to finish strong, he will have a season <clears throat> of significant failure. As you study these men in Scripture, this seems to be the pattern. And the guy that we're going to look at tonight is a man that really had, quite frankly, an extraordinary life and an extraordinary story. Uh, we think of him as one of the greatest leaders when Jesus was transfigured, two men, and, the, and Peter and, and a couple other apostles were with him, suddenly uh, on that mountaintop, you had Jesus, Elijah, and one other man. And that man was Moses. Uh, the man we're going to look at tonight is Moses. Uh, he, he has really a, a unique story. And if you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to... We'll start in Acts tonight. We're going to start in Acts uh, chapter 7. What's happening in Acts chapter 7 is that Stephen, who was the first martyr in the New Testament church, before they martyred him, they brought him up before the authorities, and he's giving it offense. And what he does is he gives this, these Jewish leaders, he gives them a history lesson. And uh, it, it's, it's quite a fabulous summing up of all of the Old Testament and he gets to 717. Uh, and he just jumps in when the people of Israel are in Egypt. They went in in 14 and 15 and 16 under Joseph. He says at the time of promise, 17, verse 17 of Acts 7. But as the time of promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, and there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. All he saw was that these Jews were proliferating and outnumbering the Egyptians. It, it was he, verse 19, it was this Pharaoh who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers, so that, and the New American Standard says, so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. Literally, it's so that they would put out to die their infants so that they would not survive. If you recall the story, there were so many, and this is in the beginning of Exodus 1, there were so many um, babies being born to the Israelite women that this Pharaoh instructed the midwives, <clears throat> the midwives that if it's a male, throw them in the Nile River. The midwives wouldn't do it. Um, I think it's safe to say this would have been, a lot of times people, young people will say, you know, I'm not sure I want to have children because things are so bad. That was a bad time to have children. And whether or not uh, Moses' mother was pregnant um, when that edict was made or whether she became pregnant, certainly after that edict was made, you know this, that her and her husband were concerned and you know that the thought had to be, Lord, may we have a daughter. Because we know it's going to happen if it's a little boy. And then he goes on and he tells the story. 20. It was at this time that Moses was born. And he was lovely in the sight of God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he'd been set aside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. This is an incredible story. 
It's so incredible that uh, Hollywood has made several movies on it over the years. So they're going to play, if it's a baby boy, you throw him in the Nile, you drown him. His mother uh, wove a little basket. Obviously, it's a little ark, put a little pitch and tar just to make it watertight. <clears throat> they would take him down to the Nile, put him in the reeds. And uh, his sister Miriam would watch over him. And one day, just by chance, there is no chance. One day, by the providential hand of Almighty God, who controls and rules all things and all events and all human hearts, Pharaoh's daughter walks by. What's that? Sees the little basket. They pull it out. It's a baby. It's a little baby boy. It's very clear. It's an Israelite baby boy. It's a Hebrew baby boy. And instead of saying drown him, her heart goes out to the little baby boy because God turns human hearts. Uh, Miriam sees this, offers, would you like me to get a Hebrew woman to nurture this baby? Oh, that would be wonderful. Goes home, gets mom. Mom raises Moses in the household of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh literally has a Jewish grandson of whom he ordered to be killed, but he is spared. That's told in 21. After he'd been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. So now he's raised in the royal family. Okay? Now watch this, 22. Moses was educated. Now, none of the other Hebrews were educated. They're slaves. But Moses was picked, and he was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. And he was a man of power in words and deeds. We'll stop there for right now. Uh, F.B. Meyer, a great, great pastor and scholar <clears throat> who would do a lot of biographical sermons, he wrote this about Moses. Moses was brought up in the palace, and he was treated as the grandson of Pharaoh. When he was old enough, he was probably sent to be educated in the college which had grown up around the Temple of the Sun and had been called the Oxford of ancient Egypt. That's why Stephen said that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. But Moses was something more than a royal student. He was a statesman, and he was also a soldier. <clears throat> See, we think of Moses, and we think about... Moses lived to be 120 years old. His life breaks up into three 40-year chapters. The first 40 years in the palace, second 40 years in the wilderness, and the third 40 years leading the people. Um, we, know about the end of, we, we know about the last 40 years. We spend a lot of time on that. There is tremendous value in looking into the early years and the mid-years because it was those early and mid-years that prepared him to actually finish strong. It was in those early and mid-years where God was doing the deep work. And you see, as we look into what God did in his life, we get glimpses into what God will do in our lives. And the hard work and the deep work and the experiences of failure which he faced and had, had, had hit him right square in the chops and devastated him. That's why we're going to look at this. But see, early on, do you think of Moses as, uh, as a scholar? Do you think of Moses as a military leader? He was both. 
Meyer goes on and says, he was more than a royal student. He was a statesman and a soldier. Stephen tells us that he was mighty in words and deeds. Mighty in words, there is the statesman. Mighty in deeds, there is the soldier. The Jewish historian Josephus says that while he was still early in his manhood, the Ethiopians invaded Egypt, routed the army sent against them, and took the city of Memphis. In the panic, the oracles were consulted, and on their recommendation, Moses was entrusted with the command of the royal troops. He immediately took to the field, did an all-night march, surprised and defeated the enemy, and captured their principal city, and returned to Egypt, laden with the spoils of victory. Hmm. Military hero. Um, powerful in words and deeds. A leader of men. Uh, had the equivalent of a Ph.D., Quite a guy. Uh, went from a slave adopted into the wealthiest family in all of Egypt. Uh, none of his family members were educated. He went right to the top. Highly decorated military leader. Um, remarkable story. This guy was acquainted with success. He Cape Canaveraled into success. He rocketed into success in the first 40 years. Everything he touched turned to gold. He didn't miss in anything. And then comes the failure. If you look at verse 24 of Acts 7, This is when everything pivoted. And now he's going to enter into the second phase of his life, the second 40 years. And he never, here's the thing, he never saw it coming. Oftentimes in life, what happens is we get blindsided. And we just absolutely never saw it coming. And something, some event will occur that uh, stuns us and shocks us and uh, at times immobilizes us and at times um, uh, absolutely throws us off kilter and we're in absolute vertigo and we are just uh, floating through space without any navigation. We, we don't know what the heck happened, but something happened. Stunning, stunning reversals. <clears throat> All right, here we go. Verse 23, when he was approaching the age of 40, everything had been great up until now. When he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brother and the sons of Israel. See, he knew. At a certain point, he knew as he got older and started looking around, you know, he never went to the family reunions. But his mom had told him about his family, his extended family. He knew his history. And he was not an Egyptian. And she was there, and she was the conduit that God used to instruct him and give him the history in the background. He could see the hand of God and the providence of God. And as he got older, it became more and more clear to him, God did not just put me in here for my own personal well-being and pleasure. He didn't just put me in here so I could drive a Lexus chariot. He put me in here for a reason and a purpose. And the older and the older and more mature he became, the more he could see it. God has a plan, and what God's going to do is deliver these people. And who else can deliver these people. 
Who else has the qualifications? Who else has the education? Who, who else has been given what I have been given? This isn't just for me. God's going to do something through me. He could see it. And so what happens is he's going to implement it. That's what's going on here. He was approaching the age of 40 and entered his mind to visit his brother and the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. This was absolutely unheard of. He, de- he defends this Hebrew who's getting beat to a pulp <clears throat> by this uh, Egyptian taskmaster. And he winds up killing the guy. Now, here was his motivation, verse 25. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. See, he had figured it out at the age of 39. I am the one that God has chosen to lead these people out. And was he right? Absolutely. But he was 40 years off on the timing. That happens to us sometimes. We get a sense of what God wants to do. There's something in our hearts that we feel God wants us to do by his grace, and it's a desire. And a lot of times in our immaturity and in our um, unwillingness to wait on the timing of God, we attempt to implement our own plans and our own dreams and our own visions, and we try to manipulate things. And I did that. I imagine some of you have done that. And it goes down in flames. That's exactly what happened here. Um, He supposed his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. And not only did they not understand, they turned against him. Look at the next verse. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, like families do. You got these guys fighting together, you know, these Hebrews fighting each other. He tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? See, he thought they would welcome his leadership. They didn't want it. At this remark, uh, and then the guy said, You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? It it was all over the Internet. Uh, You know, things can spread before the Internet was around. They all knew within 24 hours what had happened. All two million of them. 29, at this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Everything pivoted right there in his life. All he knew up until this point was success. For the next 40 years, all he will know is failure. Uh, and, And I'll tell you what, it just wasn't any failure. It wasn't a failure on a midterm, and you can still recover on the final. It, it wasn't a favor if you, uh, you know, aced the next three quizzes and read uh, four extra books and got extra credit. You could still pass. This was a failure of monumental consequences because who else? And, and I think this is what he dealt with for the next 40 years. He had had a shot. Those two million people were under the iron grip tyranny of Pharaoh, and there was absolutely no way to get them out, and he was the one guy 
who had the gifts, who had the skills, who had the preparation, who had the leadership, who had the connections that could have pulled it off. He had a shot, he took it, and he missed. And there was literally no one else on the horizon who could have done what he could have done. But he blew it. That's what you call dealing with devastating failure. It's failure from which there is absolutely, as far as you can see, there is absolutely no recovery. Now, what's interesting about this is that this is precisely what many of us have dealt with. Isn't it? <clears throat> Man, if I had been a better husband, that marriage would still be together. If I had been a better dad, my kids would want to talk with me. They don't want anything to do with me. Um, if I hadn't lived the kind of life just so sexually irresponsible, then perhaps I wouldn't be, and, and see, it just goes on. It's endless. It's absolutely endless. We look at what we have done. We, we look at decisions we have made. We look at things that uh, we misjudge, mistakes, failures, uh, wrong kind of ambition, pulling the trigger too soon, all these things, and we look and we just, we're in flames. <clears throat> and it's over. And, and there is absolutely no going back, and there is absolutely no recovery, and our life changes. I was talking with a guy this weekend at this conference in California. We were talking for several minutes, and he just was, um, I, I, I just liked his spirit. And he was telling me about discipling some guys, and I said, how long have you been doing this? And he said, well, I started in prison. I said, really? He goes, yeah. I said, how long were you in? He goes, 29 years. How long have you been out? Uh, five. Huh. This guy's heart had been changed by the living Christ, by the living God. He was not the man that he was going in. Hmm. First 40 years, success. The next 40 years, absolute failure. Uh, turn over with me to Exodus chapter 2. We get a little another, another glimpse on this same story. You got more detail on the story of Moses there, and uh, actually it's, it's set up in Exodus 1 about the Joseph and the people proliferating and throw them into the Nile. Then you get specific into Moses in Exodus 2. Um, you get down to verse 14, and it's recounting, you know, the whole story of killing the Egyptian and the, the guy throwing that in his face the next day. But there is a nugget there's a nugget in 11, and there is a nugget in 12. Now, it came about, I'm in Exodus 2, it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. Now, look at this. So, he looked this way and that. And when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Um, I'm sure, I'm almost positive that I first heard this from Chuck Swindoll years and years and years ago. But Chuck, talking on this verse, said, here's what he did. 
He saw the beating. And in his mind, all these years, it had been rolling in his mind. God has prepared me to deliver these people. And in this moment, what he did was he looked this way. And he looked that way. But he never looked that way. He never looked up. He looked to the left. He looked to the right. Is the coast clear? Yeah, and then he triggered. But he never looked up. You've done that, and I've done it. That's what you call a false start. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. And here's what happens with us in our youthfulness and in our immaturity. We think we know best. We think we know best as to timing, and the last thing we ever want to do is to wait. And so what we do is we'll have a false start. This is what happened to him. I'll touch on that in a minute. Um, he looked this way, he looked that, and then what did he do? He pulled the trigger, he stepped in, winds up killing the guy. Um, it, 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 there's another piece here. The next day, the t- Hebrews are fighting. Why are you striking your companion? He says to them, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? I'm in 14. Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. Yes, it has. Look at the next verse. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. See, this is where it all changed. Instead of being in the favor of Pharaoh, instead of being in line possibly to one day be Pharaoh himself, now he's on the run. So what does he do? Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Here comes the next 40 years. Um, In my Bible... Uh, I will show you this. Uh, on the bottom of the page, left-hand side is 2.15, where Pharaoh was going to kill, kill him, and he flees to Midian. And then, uh, this top half right here, from, what is that, 16 down to 25, that section right there, you see this? I'm covering about, what, one, two, maybe three inches that covers the next 40 years of his life. That's it. The next 40 inches, of, the next 40 years of his life gets three inches of print. Now, why would that be? Well, I'll tell you why. There was nothing to report. There was nothing going on. No successes, no taking an all-night march and seizing a city and being a statesman and doing none of that. Forget that. Because he's in a new chapter. He's in a chapter of, he's in a chapter of failure. Um, the first 40 years, I said he lived 120 years. To capsulize it, the first, four, the first 40 years, he was an unqualified success, an unbelievable success. The second 40 years, he's an undisputed failure. But see, it doesn't end there. The, the last 40 years, <clears throat> now he's going to be fit for the master's use. See, there is a process. There is a process of maturity. And see, this is part of finishing strong. 
It isn't that, you know, we all like to have, we come to know Christ, we have a great start, and then we just take off like a rocket all the way to the finish line for the next 40, 50, 60 years. Just, we're just nailing it. That's not how it works. Not how it works. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be disappointment. There's going to be failure. There's going to be setbacks. There's going to be grief. There's going to, all kinds of stuff because God matures his men and God matures his men through different processes. There are many different toolboxes, uh, tools in God's toolbox. And one of the tools that God uses to build his men and equip them to finish strong, catch this, is the thing that we're all afraid of, which is failure. He will use your failure. And see, we think that failure disqualifies us. I'm out of the race. That's it. I'll never recover. But see, because he's a savior, because Jesus is the great savior, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved. And I pointed this out before, the way that's constructed there, that participle, for by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. That participle, you have been saved, <clears throat> the way it's constructed, it means this, for by grace you have been saved with continuing results. He saves us when we call on his name, when we hear the gospel, and the Spirit of God pulls us, and we call out on the name of Jesus, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But see, <laughs> he just keeps saving us after that. And he's even the God, and he's even so great that he can save you from failure that you think there is no possible way you could ever recover from. <clears throat> but see, that's what he does with guys. We've all failed. Every single one of us have failed. We just failed in different ways. And, and we're absolutely convinced <laughs> it's hopeless. That's pretty much where he was going to be the next 40 years. Um, this, uh, this transition from success to failure has huge transitions. Huge transitions. Uh, just note three. Number one, because of this failure, he had a change of address. He went from the palace to the pasture. He's going to be a shepherd. This is kind of interesting. <clears throat> when Joseph uh, was in Egypt, and then when the Lord God promoted him, and you know the story, and he's in charge right along with Pharaoh, and he's basically running the whole country, because Pharaoh looked to him as a father. He's pretty much the key guy. He's pretty much the number one guy in all of Egypt now. And then there's a famine, and he's getting ready for the famine. And then his brothers show up, the ones that sold him into slavery. And they don't know who he is. And he's kind of tweaking them a little bit. You remember that. But when he reveals himself, and he says, go home and get dad, and come on back. I'll introduce you to Pharaoh. He said to his brothers, do not tell Pharaoh that you are shepherds. That's what he said. Because why? The Egyptians despised shepherds. You remember that? Okay. Now, what's going to happen to Moses, who was right at the top? Moses, for the next 40 years of his life, is going to Midian, and what's he going to do? He's going to be a shepherd. You don't fall any deeper off the cliff. This is the equivalent of uh, being an addict on the streets. That's pretty much when a guy hits rock bottom. 
I've talked to guys on the streets before who are, you can tell their minds are as sharp as a tack. Because at that moment, they're not loaded. They're looking for something. They need some help to get another, to get another fix. But even in their desperation, you can see the intelligence. I was in California walking into, there's a, a hamburger joint called Carl's Jr. out there. And I'm walking in to get an iced tea, and there's this kid, maybe 25, 26, sleeping on the side. He just gotten up. He, just, he looked like a he looked like a wreck. Had, hadn't had a bath in weeks. He just hair matted. And he was, he was sitting, he looked up at me and he said, hey, could you give me some money? And I said, I won't give you money. I'll buy you some, something to eat. He said, well, you really? I said, yeah, but I'm walking in with you and I'm going to order it and I'm going to make sure you eat it. Because I'm not going to give you anything to put in your body other than that. He said, okay. I said, let's go. We walked in there. <clears throat> And I said, okay, what do you want? Get anything you want. And he said, well, and he ordered. And the guy said, what else did you want? And he goes, he said, uh, that's it. And then, he, and then he said to the guy behind the counter, I'll never forget, he goes, this is my dad. <laughs> it, it was kind of funny. It was kind of funny. And it kind of broke my heart. It, it still kind of does. It was a quick wit. He was a sharp kid. Why would he say, this is my dad? Because I don't think he ever had a dad that was there for him. Why would he say that? Hmm. So I took a few minutes, and I told him about Jesus. And I said, hey, I'm going to tell you something, man. And you, This may not fit your, where you are right now, but I'm telling you, there's going to be a day and you've got nowhere to go and maybe you think you're there. But I'm telling you, who you want to know is Jesus. I'm telling you, he can turn your life around. He can make you a new man and give you a new heart. I said, just remember Jesus. And he kind of flippantly said, I will. He wasn't there yet. This is where Moses was. He knew the living God, but it was, you couldn't have gone any farther down than Moses went to be a shepherd. If word filtered back, now why did he go to Midian, first of all? Why did he go to Midian? Because nobody in their right mind would go to Midian. Uh, Midian was a desert. 135 degrees recorded temperatures in, in Midian. 132, something like that. If you drive from uh, Southern California to Dallas, we, we've done that on vacations before, loaded up the kids, going out, coming back. You get into the high desert, you get into Barstow. And right outside of Barstow, you're going to go into the Mojave Desert. And there's a certain point, and there will be this, this sign that says, last gas for 78 miles or 84 miles. I can't remember what it is. Something like that. And there's this one gas station. And it looks like something out of a haunted movie. It looks like it was built in 1938. And it's, the Coke machine is still 1938. And the gas pump's 1938. And there's some toothless dog. 
and the wind's howling and the windows are flapping and there's just and some guy comes out that looks like you know he's been he's been dead 138 years and it's just kind of spooky that's Midian that's where Moses went for the next 40 years from the palace to the pastures and quite frankly there wasn't much grass in Midian it was just eking out an existence that's the first transition. Second transition, and I've already covered it, was there was a change of vocation. Didn't get any worse than being a shepherd for an Egyptian. Number three, there's a change of status. <laughs> if you've ever had failure, significant, significant failure, you've experienced the loss of many friends. Not all friends, but you find out who your real friends are, don't you? Uh, I, I remember, uh, and see, this is why I'm struggling, not only because of my voice, but because there's no time clock. But I just didn't, I didn't even realize it till this moment because I'm so high on medication. <laughs> uh, I'm not high, I just realized there's no time clock. That's okay. Um, so I'm gonna make this up as I go. And this is interesting because my watch is still on Pacific time from this past weekend. <laughs> so we're going to be here a while is what I'm trying to say. Um, when, when I was a young guy, I was in a, my first church and I was very ambitious. I, I, I was 28 and I was going to build it into a great church and in the San Francisco Bay Area. It's not, it's not what you call real, uh, uh, real productive soil out there. It's a tough place to minister. <clears throat> but I was working hard, and I was just putting everything I had into it, you know, and I was going to be a success. Last thing on my mind was failure. And we had, we had some growth, and it was good. But I had certain goals that were just crazy. And I was working my tail off to hit them, and I didn't hit them, and I got discouraged. And long story short, long story short, uh, really didn't get good counsel. Just kind of, because, see, I was always getting ahead of the Lord as a young guy. I always had a plan. Uh, my personality, when, when uh, one time I took a personality profile and they said, you don't have one, which was kind of hurtful, but <laughs> you've, you've taken those. Uh, this was called DISC. It was a pretty, pretty interesting test. Not a test, but a profile. You kind of how you're wired. And here's, and as I recall, there were three scores. Here's how you are normally. Here's how, how you are under pressure. And then there was something else. Three different scenarios. On every single one of them, I came out what's called results-oriented. I set goals, I hit objectives, and I want to hit them. I don't want to be delayed. I don't want to be frustrated. I don't want to be in maintenance mode. I want results. That's how I'm wired. And as a young guy, a young pastor in my first church, I, I wanted these results, and we had, you know, God was good, but man, I was off the charts. And so in my foolishness, and as I burned myself out with every waking hour, every ounce, building the kingdom of God, uh, really not uh, spending any time with my wife, who I dearly love, but I really didn't have time for that. Never went to, on a date, never went on a movie. I mean, you know, I was just completely out of balance, and I didn't see it. 
I just wore myself out and I felt guilty for taking their money because I couldn't give 100% anymore because I was so worn out. And after a year of that, I just resigned not knowing where I was going. That's pretty stupid. And then God let me sit for a year. I had all these interviews and they all turned me down. And you talk about feeling like a failure because we lost our house. We lost everything financially. Nobody wanted me. And I was, what, 31 years old? And I remember the morning Mary came downstairs to ask me how I was doing because she could hear me crying from upstairs. Because in my gut, I can remember I felt like such a failure. And then I remember, and this, I just thought of this, I remember going upstairs, walking in the bathroom, and there was a book in there I had by this guy, Swindoll. And the title of it was The Hammer, The File, and The Furnace. And he talked about those three elements in the life of the man that God is going to use. And I'm telling you, I had tears all over that book. The hammer. I was getting, I mean, I've been hammered. And it was my own stinking fault. The file. File goes against the grain. Oh, the furnace. I remember, I remember him saying, if these words make sense to you, don't lose heart. And I remember him saying, you may be there a while longer. <sighs> but let God do his work. I was in that about three years. I went into a deep depression. It was good for me that I was afflicted, David said. Um, what was, what, here's, here's what was happening. So Moses is going to be in this thing for 40 years, this season of failure. Um, went from the penthouse to the outhouse, basically. 40 years of nothing. Just the sheep, bah, you know, it, it, it's, it's horrific. Um, he went in a confident young man, uh, confident enough to try to take 2 million people out of a country. He'd had great success. He had great education. He was competent. He was capable. He was gifted. And now what's going to happen is, uh, and I'll tell you what else he was. He was self-reliant. See, we all have to learn at some place in the race what Jesus said is true. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so he takes guys that have some uh, competence and some capability, and we've had some success. And probably what's going to happen to you, if it hasn't already, is that at some point, you're going to have significant failure. And what God does, and you're going to walk into a wilderness like he did, and what's going to happen is that God is going to drain you of your self-reliance. And you're going to hit a wall. And you're going to get depleted. And um, you're going to experience some things that you really have no interest in experiencing. And you're going to wonder, what the heck is happening to me? Uh, I, I look back on my time in that wilderness, and I, I came up with this. You see, 
Um, Moses was highly educated. He had a PhD. Before you get a PhD, you got to have a master's. And before that, you got to have a bachelor's. He had all those degrees. But he was lacking a key degree to be used by God. And you see, when you talk about finishing strong, what does that mean? I want to, I want to be used by God in some way, shape, or form. It's a great thing. I want my life to count. I want my life to be productive for the kingdom and for eternal things. However that could be, Lord. Um, Moses was missing a, a degree that he really, really needed. He was missing the MCA degree. What's an MCA? An MCA is a master's of character acquisition. Because see, we are, as young men, we are interested in the external success. The uh, the, the job that's just the dream job, and along with it, the house that's the dream house, and the cars and the second house and all this. We are after the external success. God's interested in <laughs> the development of the character of a man of God, you see. You say uh, an MCA degree, Masters of Character Acquisition, I've never heard of it. It's probably right. And where do you go to get this? Well, there's no catalog. Uh, they wouldn't print a catalog. Why would they print one? No one would want it. Because you see, this is what the, the, the master of character acquisition is only found in God's school of disappointment. You know, I've never heard of the school of disappointment. Well, they don't advertise either. Because if they did, no one would enroll. And no one would ask for the catalog and no one would ask for the course schedule because nobody wants these courses. Uh, in my opinion, there are at least four core courses <clears throat> to the Masters of Character Acquisition, to the MCA degree. And here's the thing. You would never sign up for these courses. So what God does is God signs us up for these courses. Oftentimes, here's what happens is that... Um, um, Radical, unforeseen events come into our lives, um, like a bankruptcy, a divorce, uh, some kind of moral failure, uh, some kind of drug abuse, some kind of integrity issue. And what happens is, through these events, sometimes these are events we have brought on ourselves, sometimes these are events where it's a combination. It, it, Whatever the event, no matter how you got into it, I will tell you this, it's these events where someone experienced can look at what's going on in your life and they realize he's being enrolled in the MCA program. Because you see, you think you're finished. You're not being finished. You're not finished, you're being prepared if you'll be teachable. Let me give you four core courses. <clears throat> in my opinion, that you will probably run into in getting an MCA degree. Number one, uh, many guys find themselves enrolled in Unemployment 101. It is possible that you will go through an extended time of unemployment. It, it's possible that, uh, or along the same lines, that you will be passed over for a promotion that in all rights should have been yours. Politics plays a role. Backroom deal plays a role. You may still have a job, but you were passed over. That's bitter to swallow. Someone doesn't like you that's above you. And they pull the strings. And they put someone else in that position that rightfully should have gone to you. 
See, this is all under the guise of Unemployment 101. And you've had a modicum of success and you have tasted some, you know, some privileges and some things as a result of your employment and now suddenly it's all flipped. And instead of success, you've got failure in your career. That's very tough, a bankruptcy, something like that. God often uses these things. I, I remember I was, I, I was, uh, I left that church on my own. I was confident another church would interview me and another church did interview me and they passed me over. And then another church the next day called me. And I was confident, oh, that's why the first one didn't work out. I'm going to this one. Well, the second one passed me over. That happened seven times in a row. That's why Mary heard me crying one morning downstairs. I, I cannot tell you how much of a fool I felt like. What a failure. Look what I've done to my wife. I got these little kids. What a, what a complete idiot. I looked this way. I looked that way. I never looked up. Lord, is this what you want me to do? Quite frankly, I said that. I didn't mean it. I knew what I wanted, and I wanted it on my schedule. Uh, that whole time, there was one little church that kept calling me, a very small church, only 15 minutes away from my other church, made up of people 70, 75, 80 years old, and I was in my early 30s. They were old school. They were old-fashioned. They were legalistic. I wanted nothing to do with them, and they kept calling me. I remember the first time they called me, I listened politely, thank you for the call, I put the phone down, and I said to myself, I would, in fact, I said it out loud, I would never go there. <laughs> which led me to the, to the second course, which is advanced obscurity. Advanced obscurity. See this young church I had, and suddenly it was starting to grow, and we were starting to get some notoriety, and people were hearing about it. But when I went to that, <clears throat> sorry about the voice, when I went to that old church, sweet people, but old people that, what happened to Farrar? What the heck was that about? It made no sense. I'm just telling you, I was embarrassed. Um, <laughs> those people were so sweet to me. The two, they'd had some problems with previous pastors. And if I just loved my wife and... Uh, kept my hand out of the offering bag. They were pleased. And I was a wreck. I didn't want to be there. There was no challenge. I had nothing to do except preach. I didn't do any counseling. If you've been married for 50 years and you've got marriage problems, you're not going in to talk to some 30-year-old kid. You just buy another TV and put it in the bedroom. Don't be surprised. And see, some of you guys right now, you once kind of had some success and some notoriety, and now you're absolutely obscure as a result of divorce or this or that. I don't know what it is. But see, you think you're done, and you think it'll always be this way. You don't know that. You don't know what he's up to in your life. May I say this to you? Ask God to give you a teachable heart. And ask God to teach you the lessons. Because there are lessons to be learned in obscurity and in unemployment 
and then the other two I'll give you in a minute that you can't learn anywhere else, that you don't learn in prosperity. Boy, I read a great quote from Thomas Brooks this week. Brooks said, the old Puritan pastor, he says, adversity has slain its thousands, prosperity its tens of thousands. Did you get that? Adversity, you remember David has slain, uh, Saul has slain his thousands, David is tens of thousands? Okay. Adversity has slain its thousands, but prosperity has slain its tens of thousands. Most of us can't handle the prosperity we'd like to have. <coughs> prosperity is dangerous. Let me give you the third course. The third course is remedial waiting. Remedial waiting. Because when you are in the wilderness, Moses was going to be here for 40 years. See, what's happened is you had success, and now there's a season of failure. And what happens is, the longer it goes on, the longer it goes on, the more you'll think you'll be there forever. But see, here's the fact. God does not put a man in the wilderness to keep him there forever. He puts a man in the wilderness to prepare him for what God has down the road. You see? But see, when there's a bankruptcy, when there's a moral failure, when there's uh, an integrity issue, when there is divorce, when whatever it is, and you find yourself looking around, and you're asking God to intervene, and you're asking God to change things, but it's just staying the same, and you're in a maintenance mode, and you're in a situation. You might have a job, but you're underqualified, you're, you're overqualified, you're way overqualified, and what happens is um, you're not challenged, and you have no energy, and you have motivation. It's just you're there, and, and, you're tr and you're trying to be engaged, but you're not because it doesn't fit. You feel like you're a fish out of water. The Lord knows that. But once again, ask him to give you a teachable heart and say, Lord, let me learn everything you have for me. Do not, do not despise the day of small things. Learn the lessons. Stay at your post. When I was in that little church, because I had been such a mover and a shaker and was so ambitious, one of the things that was clear to me is that God put me here, and those people were so sweet to me. They were so gracious as I was in this depression. And they didn't know I was, how depressed I was, but I was depressed, seriously depressed. Um... But I determined that I would do nothing to leave that church. I, would, I didn't even have a resume. Forget about putting out a resume. I didn't even have one. I would do nothing to leave that place. If, if God ever wanted me out of there, he was going to have to do something so radically, radically of him that I couldn't miss it. And three years later, he did. And it was pretty radical. But I was afraid of myself. I was afraid of my heart. I was afraid of my tendencies. I'm always getting ahead. Instead of following, I'm getting ahead and saying, Lord, come on. I got this great idea. What an idiot. So I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and I was in a maintenance mode, and I'm result-oriented. 
But I found out reading through the Psalms, because that's pretty much all I read, because I was so depressed. All the time I'm reading Psalms, and just about every page I run into this word called wait. Oh, and then one day I came across Isaiah 64, 4. No eye has seen a God like thee who works for those who wait for him. Hmm. See, I don't have to try to manipulate and do it. If you can do something legitimate, do it. But you don't have to try to navigate and put all the pieces together for your life. Let God do that. You stay faithful, you do your work, you honor him. Am I making sense? He's got a plan. Psalm 31, 15, my times are in thy hand. I always couple that with Psalm 138, 8. The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. I don't have to do it. I don't even know what concerns me. He does. So stay at your post, stay faithful. Do what the word of God tells you to do. Don't try to anticipate the future so much. You got to think about it, but don't live in it. You got something called the present. Okay. You're not going to be there forever. You're there for a season. It's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. You say, well, where's the end? I don't know. Why don't you trust him with the end? Number four. I think the other core course is intermediate loneliness. Because when you're in a wilderness, you're lonely. And people that were with you when you were successful, they tend to drop off. You do find out who your real friends are. Uh, and it may be only one to help you through this season. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says, you remember our affliction in Asia when we were excessively burdened beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life itself. Paul wanted to die. He was so depressed. And then you weave your way through 2 Corinthians and you get to 2 Corinthians 7 and he says, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us with the coming of Titus. At the right time, God sent Titus into his life and Titus just was a gift from God right there. I had a couple guys that during that wilderness were real gifts to me. And I'd really never had a relationship with them before that crisis. They played key roles in my life. Now, here's the good news. You're not in this forever. You're not in this wilderness forever. And there is a day of graduation for the MCA degree. But here's the deal. There are no graduation ceremonies. There's no caps and gowns. There's no class rings. Um, there's no yearbook. But there will be a graduation. And then what happens is, and see, it happened to Moses because one day, just like any other day, where he lost all his courage and he lost all his hope and he lost all his dreams and he just thought he was finished and he's out roaming with the sheep just doing what he's done for 40 years in a maintenance mode, he walks by this bush and it's on fire and it's not being consumed. And God did something extraordinary and started talking to him out of this bush and said, get your sandals off your unholy ground. And see, the thing is, you think when you're in this that that can never happen. But God has his ways and God has his chapters. And God knows when to graduate a man. And he doesn't take us through difficulty and he doesn't take us through hardship just to take us through it. He takes us through it to prepare us for a work that he's got in mind for us that we know nothing about. We think we have no work left. We think we're finished. 
but eye has not seen and ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. If you're alive, he still has a work for you to do. When you're Work is done, you die and go to be with him. So the fact that you're here and breathing, he still has something for you to do that's part of his plan and has always been part of his plan. But in order, you see, to get prepared for that, there's a season of preparation. There's a season where he does the deep work which breaks our heart. Uh, Ray Steadman used to say that resurrection power always works best in a graveyard. When you think you're dead, when you think you're finished, watch the resurrection power of Christ. There are guys in here, I look around, nodding their heads because they've experienced it. And see, we're talking about finishing strong. And here's one of the greatest men in all the Bible. And we know his life. And did he finish strong? Oh, yeah. But there was a season of failure where he was taught, where he was instructed, where he learned the lessons and he was prepared. And why do we study those seasons? Because it gives us insight into what God is doing in our lives and what he wants to do. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, you want to make us fit for the master's use. You want to conform us into the image of Christ, and that is going to involve massive change. And so you allow change and earthquakes. You allow us to get blindsided. You allow us to uh, envision our own plans and follow them and then uh, fall into a pit. And then we cry out to you. And then you redeem us and you rescue us. What a race, what a race, what a journey. But we thank you for the encouragement of the scriptures. We, we thank you, Lord, that through the lives of these different men, you explain to us your methods. When God wants to drill a man and skill a man and use a man, then watch his methods and watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects how he hammers him and hurts him, and with every blow fuses him. Our lives fall apart, and then you use the hammer, and you'll use the file, and you will use the furnace to conform us into the image of Christ so that you can use us for the next chapter. For the guys in here who have lost hope, put hope back into their heart. Don't let us be bitter. Let us be teachable. We bow and we submit to your sovereignty in our lives. Our times are in your hand. We don't dictate. We submit. We trust you to lead us. You said you will do it. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. But don't be as the horse or mule whose trappings include bit and bridle to keep them in check, Psalm 32 says. You lead, Lord, we'll follow. We won't pull at the rein. We won't pull at the bit anymore. We submit. 
And there will be a day, as Isaiah 30 says, when we'll hear a voice behind us that says, this is the way, walk ye in it. And it'll be a new day and a new chapter. Until then, we wait on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.